Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Is this Annie here? Annie. Thank you very much. Can you all hear? Um, I'm going to read from a little bit from the River Gods, uh, the recently published novel, and then from this, uh, for once in my life, untitled novel, uh, which is set in Calives in Crete. Uh, and what I'm reading from the River Gods, the River Gods is kind of an eccentric history of Northampton, Massachusetts, where I grew up. Um, this is pretty unrepresentative of it. It's a book of fragments and vignettes and tiny stories. I think those are all three describing the same thing. Um, they do begin to cohere, and there is one set of characters, uh, myself uh, with, with my own name, my brother uh, who died 20 years ago, my parents, my sister, my grandparents, who do appear throughout the book, and I'm not reading about any of them tonight, uh, because this, the theme of this uh, reading tonight is love, sex, uh, falling in love. Uh, I had never really written a love story until this novel, uh, and it's only partly a love story. Then my working title is CIA love story, love, love in the CIA, or something like that. There is some CIA uh, in it. There are a lot of international events, and uh, it's set in 1988. Um, but the, the River Gods, um, each chapter, and they're two or three pages long, is introduced by a year and sometimes the name of the character and the ca uh, character's age. And I'm going to read the very first piece, among a few others. June 1974, Bill Beloit, age 18, Northampton High School tailback. The tree is smoother than we expect. The limbs at this height, about 15 feet off the ground, are worn by something, an animal, a disease, weather. We manipulate our bodies, her back, my shoulder, her elbow, to reach a level of comfort and organization. Her parents are inside eating their TV dinners. The light from the television bathes our naked parts in blue. As we begin, there's a flash from the TV. The scene has shifted, and the brightness startles us. She grips a smaller branch just then, which makes us sway and heightens the tension of our contact, the reverberating tree swinging inside our bodies. The next night, close to dawn, I ride my Harley Electroglide up Elm Street just before Child's Park, coming back from TJ's where we had a keg in the woods, a dry run for the festivities tomorrow after graduation. The turn onto Woodlawn is always tricky. Drivers wanting to pull out can't see you coming around the curve, and I know I'm going too fast. The curious thing is I, I can see around the corner and down Woodlawn to her bedroom window, and I know she's lying in bed wearing the John Barleycorn t-shirt I gave her two years ago, and no underwear. The station wagon comes into view, turning left on Elm Street, and I can tell a bad thing will happen, not necessarily to me, but to the three little kids in the back seat. What are they all doing up at two in the morning? I veer and slide. Thank God I'm wearing the helmet and leather chaps my father gave me. It'll be a bad burn, but at least they won't have to take skin from my ass to replace missing skin on the thigh. The slide is clean. I find I can hold the hand grips so the front wheels point slightly downward, which makes for a small gap my legs fit under. While I'm noting this, the station wagon drives in slow motion across Elm Street into the little triangular park by the high school. 
The father must be drunk because he speeds up and plows into a 50-foot-tall pine tree. The sound is a cartoon-like blam. My body comes free of the bike, and I do a nice roll as if escaping oncoming linebackers. The end of the roll has me standing upright, dusting off my chaps, which show no skid marks. I see the kids slumped forward in the back seat of the station wagon, and one has fallen out onto the car, out of the car onto the grass. I break into a run, a tight button hook, but something like a very large needle jabs me in the chest. I fall. Life leaps athletically out of me. The kid on the grass wakes to see blood gush from my mouth, me on my knees. Somehow I can see that I've broken a rib and the sheer dumb luck of running so hard has sent the splinter of bone into my heart. He died instantly, I hear the ambulance driver tell the father, who isn't drunk after all, or else my death has sobered him up quick. Standing there, I watch these kids grow into manhood. It all happens too fast to narrate, but I witness their lives unfold and fall apart. They feel responsible for my death, except it's only the father's fault. Three beers and six bourbons at the backyard barbecue that went on way too long. They were the last to leave, their hosts giving them the evil eye, his kids asleep in the car for hours while his wife tried desperately to get him to leave. The father dies of drink, but not dramatically. I watch the liver grow gray, laced with more and more hard veins of dead tissue. He's 67 when he goes. I have to wait as long as the living for the future to arrive. Cheerful story. <coughs> this is a love, there are love stories in here. But there's a little bit of love in there, sorry. Um, none of these are particularly cheerful at first. This book is very dark. Uh, but you'll see what I'm getting at. This is uh, way back in time. The book moves back and forth uh, without any apparent order. Uh, there is, but I can't. I don't know what it is, actually. But uh, it's echoes of things. We're now back in May 1738, and this is Madad Stoddard, age 16. And if this is, I assume, I hope you all know who Jonathan Edwards is, the great Protestant minister, uh, and I think uh, my father, a philosopher, also thinks that one of the great American philosophers. My father doesn't really agree with his philosophy, but uh, a great writer, I think. My uncle, Jonathan Edwards, and I arrived at the Connecticut River Ferry before noon. The ferryman asked if we would join him in his midday repast. He had not eaten at all that morning, a spat with the good lady of his house. So he too was hungry, to, uh, too hungry to wait on lunch. Pastor Edwards nodded yes, although he was lost in thought. Inflamed by passion for my 18-year-old cousin in Hadley, I looked on the scene with tender excitement. Cascades of purple, white, and pink flowers fluttered in the breeze over the riverbank and petals floated downstream. I watched the ferryman chew his lunch without teeth. Here was one of the great majority of the town who could not take the covenant because he did not own land. These men waited outside the church after the sermons for notes written down during the service. Edwards was oblivious of this fellow and in no way discomforted by this fellow's exclusion from the church. I spoke several sympathetic words to the ferryman, but I forgot what I'd said the instant after the words left my lips. The hot sun and sweet air and drone of bees made us all sleepy. On the other side of the river, we could see Stephen Williams and his daughter waiting. Williams had the reins strapped tightly across the horse's breast, a, cool, a cruel way of leaving the animal at rest. 
The tension of the man multiplies in the horse. I forgave him this moment of anger and loved my cousin with this wash of river between us. This is, I won't do the introduction, but this is the same character. Medad Stoddard, 1738, remember? Molly Williams breathes up at me. Her breath smells of God. Neither Reverend Everards nor Reverend Williams suspects us of evil. The two intimidating figures fall into conversation and ride ahead on, the horse, on horseback. We stay behind to check the bridles of the draft horse and to load the shipment of books from New Haven Jonathan Edwards is delivering to his cousin, Molly's father. In plain sight of the ferryman with her back turned to him, Molly reveals one white breast to me. Quickly as she undid, she does up her blouse and jumps onto the buckboard unassisted. The ferryman sees this with delight and scorn mixed equally, and it is the sort of thing he might report to her father, so she says, a spider on the ground did throw me into fright. He nods. I presume he knows otherwise to be truth, but the ferryman would also have to admit he has nothing solid to report, for if he does, it would include the subjective and salacious finding that Molly jumped onto the buckboard sensually, as if in a dance, as if possessed briefly by the devil's own sense of play. Molly and I do not deceive out of fear of discovery or because the devil lives in our choice of, sensual, of a sensual nature and our mutual physical affection. We deceive casually because it pleases us to, because we do no one harm and because we enjoy accumulating venial sins. We drive off under no clouds, although ahead on the path, far ahead, we can see the, a, a storm gathering to obscure our elders' sunlight. The road turns sharply at Deacon Hawley's second field, and we lose sight of our moral guidance. I urge the horse to take a left turn back toward the river, which plies to our favor. I find a spot far from anyone's home because it is so close to the river's annual flooding. We alight and slide down the mud trail to the river. To our surprise, we undress completely, unafraid, and truly as if we know what we are doing, but we know not what works we have in store. We know only the hushed mechanism of action, operating as if by a spring unwinding. We face one another, surprised by the clumsiness of our bodies. She takes me in her hand and turns herself around and lays hold of a tree trunk for support with her free hand. She guides me. It is not easy, contrary to what we expect of sin, but the pain, the sweat, the unaccustomed shapes conjured against the shadows in our minds, the very struggle makes this action tangibly pleasing. Lilacs nearby color the surrounding smell. Inside a small inlet of the river, we find a raft made of fallen logs with green willow branches as lashing. We climb onto it, now dimly aware our sin is great, but in the grip of a force that makes our movements at least seem sensible and clean-spirited. The boys who made the raft would not disfavor its being employed for a half an hour. We intend only to drift in place in the tiny protected bay, so we hang our clothes nearby on the bushes by the water. The raft does at first turn gently in soporific circles, so at length we fall asleep in each other's arms. But rivers are mischievous spirits, and with a start we wake to find ourselves midstream, downriver, past the ferry landing. We judge our chances of swimming ashore poor at this stage of the river, where it moves with cunning and authority. We do not yield to despair, however, and we see from our lowly birth the beauty of this river valley. The Connecticut River here comes to a great gap in the mountains, which are just this week a riot of new greens. 
The raft moves quickly for a time, then comes to a stretch of languid swirls, and water begins to penetrate the careless vessel. We luxuriate in the sensation of cold river water and hot sun above. Mortal danger also awakens carnal desire, so we move together again and hold each other as one scene gradually melts into the next. The knot in the Mount, knock, the notch in the Mount Holyoke range comes closer. The stack of white clouds in the sky rests along this ridge too, a pattern which is prophetic not of danger but of passage from one state of bliss to another. The opposite bank draws very near at this point. The raft drifts within easy reach of several roots and branches. The underbrush rustles and two shiny foreheads flash. Two Indians lie on their stomachs, long sticks in their hands, confabulating about who knows what aspect of the inner workings of nature. The Indians stand up, brown leaves painted on their flesh. We wave. The Indians stare, unblinking at the white-skinned devils who are slowly sinking in each other's arms, unconcerned by the river that gathers us in its embrace. Even underwater, sunlight glints off our open eyes. We sit upright on the sandy bottom, breathing calmly as if we will survive the airless realm we have discovered. The Indians back away toward their canoe, more certain than ever that this once fertile meadow is hopelessly human. And this is the last chapter. I'm not giving anything away by reading the last chapter of the book because it doesn't work that way. But uh, this is August 1995. Ellen Chase, uh, age 35. I sit comfortably slouched in my old Volvo, my dress billowing over me like a topsail. My boyfriend of five months drives along Interstate 91 over familiar landscape. I have not visited my hometown in 10 years. My grandmother took me in, but not the twins, when I was nine, after my parents died. Uncle Frank put Grandma in a rest home a few years ago because of Alzheimer's. My boyfriend, John Gathers, arranged this research trip for himself to study the archives of Northampton's 200-year-old newspaper. He's writing a book about the town. John also grew up in Northampton, but we'd met only once, despite having been born two days apart at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. It is dark by the time we glide past the oxbow, now a tame little lake for recreation, not the beautiful bend in the river Thomas Cole painted in the 1830s. John drives carefully, reaching over every once in a while to cup my breast through the soft fabric of the summer dress. He tells me everything north of the gap between Mount Tom and Mount Holyoke was a lake as far as Canada a thousand years ago. I tell him it was more like 10,000 years ago. He keeps his eyes reassuringly on the road, but I can see the lust in them anyway. We stay on the interstate until just past Northampton, and then we take the Hatfield exit. We drive down Route 10 to a motel in the woods where we have reservations. He pulls into the parking lot and jumps out to register. I stay in the car. It's a beautiful early August night, the sumacs beginning to redden, the smell of pond water and pine intermingling. He returns quickly. He's good at things like this. He drives to the room around back. No other cars, no lights on in any of the motel room windows. I step out of the car. He comes around to the driver's side of the car, and his long, hungry gaze makes me fidget. We walk into the woods without talking. We arrive at a chain-link fence. While my back is turned, he takes off his clothes. So I slip out of my dress. I have nothing on under it. We are doing this all the time, wherever we can do it safely. 
I see the lights of a building through the trees, but they are a good distance off. This is a private sanctuary. John takes my fingers and gently twines them in the fencing. He presses up against my back, his breath on my neck, in my hair. The aroma of recently cut grass takes me back to a time that still causes serene sadness, those weeks and months after my mother died. The intense pleasure dissipates the melancholy somewhat, but not completely. My boyfriend is inside me, but he is also not there. I feel sure he's making me pregnant. I can tell I'm ovulating by my heightened sense of smell and touch. We agreed from the beginning that we would have a baby as soon as we could. I try to will the sperm into the egg. We pull apart. In one motion, I throw the dress over my head and slip inside it. John says with a catch in his voice, that was beautiful, the way you just melted into your dress. He slouches against the chain-link fence. He radiates calm. I lean into his shoulder. Rain begins to fall, warm, soft rain that brings out a fragrance in the woods, fragrance in the woods like freshly baked bread. Somewhere nearby issues a scratchy recording of a bugle playing taps, which is both creepy and moving. Life is not simply story, but chemistry, physics, and behavior layered over biology in a beautiful synergy. Um. <laughs> Thank you. That's actually my wife's, one of my wife's drawings on the cover. Um, all right. I don't think I need to explain much. Uh, this woman who's telling this story, and remember it's a woman, um, is, her name is Emily. I don't think that's necessary to know, but I like knowing it. Um, uh, she's been traveling around the Mediterranean for three years. Her mother died um, several, year, several months before that, and, and she's spending down this inheritance, which is basically the sale of her house in New Haven. Um, so she's living a a peculiar life and doing a fair number of things unreported to the reader. And the novel takes place in Calives, in the village of Calives, which is near to Hanya on the western end of, of the north coast of Crete, uh, the southernmost island of the Greek islands, the biggest island. Um, a beautiful place. Uh, this is 1988. Um, she has an ex-boyfriend briefly, a couple of months in Cyprus, uh, named Hank. He comes into his name comes into play. That's it. I think that's all you need to know. Um, there was no thermometer in the house, and I couldn't read the local newspapers, so I didn't know exactly how hot it was. But I knew it had been very hot these couple of weeks I'd been in Calives. I went to the cafe I'd gone to my first night in Calives. I noticed an American couple. I sat next to them. I realized I missed American accents and conversation. I thought these two were a couple when I first saw them, but their talk revealed they seemed to be getting reacquainted, perhaps after a long absence from one another. The man immediately drew my interest, the first man I had seen for over a year who intrigued me. Hank had not attracted me this way. I just fell into that relationship, or Hank guided me carefully into it. The woman said, yeah, getting involved with a married man has its drawbacks. I mean, you can't just call him up when things are rotten. I could not hear the man's response. 
His voice was too low. Her other remarks were a lot like this one, shallow, self-involved, even stupid. I tried not to listen to them, but I was held hostage by my salad arriving. They left just as the waiter gave me my check. They walked arm in arm along the gravel oceanfront road. I left money on the table and for no reason I could think of started to walk in the same direction, trailing behind them at a distance. I thought he seemed uncomfortable with the arm-linking gesture. Maybe he wasn't all that interested in her, although she was very pretty, the way a Nightingale Bamford girl, girl would be. They walked to the west end of town, to the last building before a clearing, very near the end of the village. They turned and entered a ground-floor apartment on the ocean side. A dozen feet away, I sat on the riprap, broken-up boulders thrown onto the ocean's edge. When the lights came on in their apartment, none of the reflected light fell on me. I was in deep darkness, but I could hear them clearly. Their bedroom was at the front of this flat. I listened to mild, bored chatter from her and a few commands made by him. I imagined he was saying, take your clothes off, now stand this way, no, this way, as if he were posing her for a portrait or as a preliminary to fucking her. There was a long silence. The sea slapped the stones. A large wharf rat skidded across the rocks a few feet from me. I wanted to make a noise at this sight, but miraculously I held my tongue. The unmistakable sounds of lovemaking now emanated from their room, the bed squeaking, his groans, and her cheerful non-sequiturs. After too little time, the noise stopped. I heard her voice, but I could not make out what she was saying. She sounded upset. I thought, I thought he was telling her to leave. She was boring him, or he was criticizing her sexual habits. There was more silence. The bed creaked. He was standing up. He came out to their tiny porch in only his boxer shorts. I became alarmed. I was no more than 20 feet away. I stopped breathing. I tried to crouch more deeply in the riprap. She came out in a bathrobe a moment later. Come back to bed. I'm sorry I talked about him. He was just a cowboy in Jackson Hole. She may have said this. She may have said something else entirely. They embraced and kissed. They went back inside. I imagined she let her robe drop. Maybe he, she put her hands up against the door frame. He would enter her roughly from behind, as if angry with her. I wanted him, have to, have to, wanted him to have been angry with her. This was plausible sex, relaxed after the violent overture. It sounded companionable. I was intrigued by this difficult couple. I found him very attractive and compelling. She was pretty but stupid and beneath his usual standards, I was sure. She was a good lay, he probably thought, whatever that phrase meant. These strangers fucked for a long time. I knew this guy was not in love with this woman, ridiculous as that sounds. He regarded her with very evident disdain. Either she noticed the disdain or she was too self-loving to care or observe. I heard them finally slow down. I imagined they pulled apart. He may have leaned down and picked up her bathrobe and put it over her shoulders. They came back outside and, and sat on the steps of their apartment, now 15 feet away from me. I began to sense they might have been aware I was there. She lit a cigarette. I hadn't smoked in five years, but the aroma awoke a keen desire to smoke again. They talked too quietly for me to hear their words. The affection in their voices and postures was hard to ignore. If they had fought and ever disliked each other, it was not visible anymore. 
She stubbed out her cigarette. He stood and helped her to her feet. They walked into the doorway. I walked to the far end of town and sat on a bench by the road. I returned past this apartment and they were sitting on the steps. They had finished. I pretended not to see them. My habit was to go to the beach east of the center of town most days at five. I lay on a big towel and read. I swam for 20 minutes, then I sunned myself. The day after, um, well, forget that. Uh, it was very hot, maybe 10, 100 degrees. I came ashore exhausted but cool, at least for the moment I lay down on, the, on my towel. Um, I pretended I was a local. I fit the part, dark-haired, modest black one-piece, and a blue sarong I wore over my hips when I arrived at the beach and when I left. I may have dozed off for a few minutes. I awoke with a start, uh, looking down at two baby feet and, a, and the shadow of a little girl over me. I said, hello, beautiful. What's your name? She handed me a small pink and blue ball that was actually two bears nesting each other in a very sexual way. I took the toy and separated the two bears, and the little girl let out a scream, took the two bears, and ran back to her part of the beach. I went for another long swim. The water was very calm and clear. I saw fish gliding along the sand ten feet below me. Little minnows nibbled on my legs when I stood still on the sand for any length of time. Back on my towel, I put on more sunblock. To my left, I noticed the man I had watched two nights before, now alone. He lay on his stomach reading a distinctly French-looking book. Without thinking, I stood and walked over to him. He looked up into the sunlight, shielding his eyes with a cupped palm. I introduced myself, and he made room for me on his blanket. I sat down and asked what he was reading. La vie est triste, he said, showing me. It was an American book of stories translated into French. The town is sad. They, they were Don, he said they were Donald Barthelme's stories gathered together from his two collections, Sadness and City Life. I've read a good deal of him in English, Jack said. It helps my French to read something so familiar. Plus, I like seeing what the French translator makes of him. Barthelme seems untranslatable to me. We talked more about writing. French writers, Middle Eastern writers, Americans, poets, history. Within a Within a few minutes, we established what languages we spoke, French, Arabic, some Turkish and Russian, him, French, German, and Spanish, me. He asked me where in the US I lived. I did not dispute that I was American, as I often did. I said, New York, last address, 80th and Amsterdam. He said, you're kidding. I have an apartment on 80th and Columbus, which is the same street. I told him I had not actually lived there for three years. I was subletting the apartment, but I had not checked in on my tenant for two years. She'd probably been kicked out unless she managed to convince my landlord she was me. We did look a lot alike. He and I laughed about this coincidence, and his hand fell near my knee. He left it there. I said, where's your girlfriend? He asked what girlfriend I was talking about. I told him I'd seen him the other night at the River Taverna. I admitted I had sat at the next table. Spying on me, he asked. He did not say this in a teasing way. It seemed genuinely to bother him. I have been alone in Calives for the last week, he said. Before that, I was on the island of Kithera for five days, also alone. 
you must be mistaking me for someone else. This bothered me a great deal. The hair on the back of my neck rose. He was lying with a perfectly straight and handsome face. I really should have left him then and there, but I was fascinated and perversely attracted. My, my interest felt clinical. This was a great disappointment. I suggested we go to Stella's cafe, and he agreed without hesitation. Stella is a woman, she's a Greek woman she's gotten to know. Um, I suggested we go to Stella's cafe, and he agreed without hesitation. I liked how decisive he was. Stella was alone at the bar. Her uncle was picking up a few big bottles of the red wine of the village. A new giant barrel was tapped every 10 days, cause for celebration because the first days the wine, the red wine was light colored and more popular with the locals. At the end of the 10 days, the wine was dark, uh, dark red, full of sediment and sweeter. I preferred the older wine. Stella poured us ouzos without asking if we wanted any. She pretended not to know me and to speak only Greek. This had not been arranged beforehand, but it charmed me. Yet another reason to love Stella. His name was Jack. We watched the ouzo turn cloudy against the melting ice. I had distrusted this man, but I was convincing myself I might have been lying. He might have been lying about this woman because she embarrassed him. Uh, let me read that again. I was convincing myself he might have been lying about this woman because she embarrassed him. I wasn't being fair. I routinely rewrote my own recent and distant past with strangers, especially men I was attracted to. Jack asked if I'd studied writing somewhere. It was a question I did not like answering honestly. We both had both established we that we liked books, odd and esoteric books at that. I could have easily asked Jack if he'd done an MFA somewhere, but he beat me to the question. As a new tactic, almost as if it were a ploy, I decided to be honest. I said I'd started two writing programs and even done a couple of weeks of a PhD in literature at Berkeley. Jack did not ask the natural follow-up question, which MFA programs. Instead, he asked why I had not finished. I didn't like my classmates in one of the programs. They, were, they weren't ambitious enough. In the other program, my classmates were too ambitious, cutthroat, happy to see each other fail. What about your teachers? Don't they matter more than the students, Jack asked? I said they were fine, all human, all distracted by their wives and lives and careers and the occasional husband. Did you sleep with any of your professors, he asked. I asked what kind of question that was. So the answer is yes. You're being an asshole right now, I told Jack, and he backed off this line of questions. He said, you're right, I'm jealous. Men don't get that opportunity unless they're gay. I signaled Stella, whom I could see was doing something in the kitchen. She said a few, few, a few words in Greek. I imagined she was speaking in her local Cretan patois. Stella cleaned the bar around us like a veteran bartender. Jack said, she's gorgeous. He stared at her breasts, which swayed free inside her, swayed free inside her blouse when she pushed the orange cloth across the bar, head down, as if unaware of Jack's remark. I asked Jack if he wanted to sleep with Stella. He looked up, suddenly awakened from his behavior. No, no, well, yes, of course, but I'm here talking with you. You're as beautiful as, not that I expect you to, not at all. I cut off this stuttering of Jack's with a wave of the hand. I said, I'm always being pursued by men. Sometimes I relent. You've not been pursuing me exactly. Maybe I'm not your type, but I am telling you now I would consider relenting. He leaned across the small gap between us and kissed me gently. 
You are very much my type, he said. It was my turn to stutter. I have one question. Are you CIA? Good God, no, Jack said, his face, his face very serious. I work in coordination with the State Department and sometimes the United Nations. I'm trying to set up microfinance aid projects in Egypt. The Carter people pretty badly bungled the aid, mostly in the form of very large payments to local governors. Remember, this is 1988. This statement contained a dangerous admission. Jack might be a Reaganaut, or he was CIA, but I liked his walk, his kiss, his confidence, and the aroma of his face. I took Jack by a belt loop, threw down money and a large tip for Stella, and I started to leave the bar with Jack in tow. Stella swept up the coins and called out in English, have fun, see you later at the disco. Jack looked back at Stella and shook his head. We went to his place. It was close to six, but still very hot. The front room where he'd fucked this other woman had a small couch. The actual bedroom was in the back, marginally cooler, a queen-sized bed, but he had a rarity, a fan that oscillated on a tall stand. He ripped off the thin blanket. He undressed in a much more leisurely manner. He was beautiful, slim, muscular, not muscle-bound, relatively hairless. His skin was very smooth. He smelled better. He smelled even better naked. He undressed me with great care. There wasn't a lot to do, my sarong, my sandals, and my suit. But he did it as if I were wearing petticoats and several layers of underwear. It was a wet, hot, sweaty affair. We showered together afterwards in a large windowless room that had nothing but a shower head and drain. Jack gradually turned down the hot water so, to, so that at the end we were standing in a very cold stream, but this was a good thing. He did all this without saying why he was doing this, but I could plainly see what he was doing, cooling our core body temperatures. We dried off and dressed. We sat on the little porch steps with, a, with cups of espresso. I did not want to disrupt the calm surf, surface of the moment, but I said, you know, I followed you home to this apartment with that woman. I did not intend to follow you. It was more or less the way home to my own place. I sat on the rocks over there, 10, 15 feet away. I listened to you fuck her. I was both very ashamed of myself for eavesdropping and pleased to be involved in your lovemaking. I have not been a w with a man in months. I needed something to break the logjam inside. Jack sipped his coffee and put his arm around my shoulder. I waited for him to speak. He did not. He was very ha I was very happy and at the same time deeply unnerved. I shared a plate of food with Jack at the Riverside Taverna. I don't remember what we ate or what we talked about. I was tired. I told Jack I needed to go to my room to, uh, to go to my own bed alone. The issue of this woman he wouldn't talk about bothered me. He let me go reluctantly. He did not follow me. I slept deeply, but with visually striking sex dreams. They were not dreams of Jack. I awoke relaxed and well-rested. This was the coolest morning since I'd been in Calives. The wind whipped the vines and flowers on my balcony wall. Red petals landed at my feet, soft and rubbery. The ocean showed white caps for the first time I could remember. The glassy smoothness of the Mediterranean now seemed a little alarming in retrospect. I had read that the eastern Mediterranean was nearly a dead sea because the Nile, Nile no longer pumped nutrients into it. The Aswan Dam put an end 
to the annual flooding in Egypt so that only 10% of the silt that once flowed into the sea now flowed into it. I wanted... I went to Stella's place and drank my first coffee too fast and burned my tongue. I have not been in love for six years, I said to Stella. I am not in love, but this is definitely the precursor feeling to love. We know it. This is the third time I've felt it. First, I was too young. I thought it was normal. I let him go too easily and slept with his older brother and broke his heart. When he took me back, it wasn't the same. The sex was, act- sex was actually better, but the sensation of openness, of, of trust, of that deep, dark calm was gone, and we never got it back. The second time I was in love, I was fighting with my father and watching my mother die for the first time, nearly die. I was just too distracted and selfish, and he was offended by my standoffishness. And then his own mother died suddenly, and his personality completely changed. He regressed back into adolescence. It was as if he were only pretending to be an adult for his mother's sake. This time, who knows, Jack may have already skipped town, afraid of falling in love, freaked out by my weird confession and accidental voyeurism. God, I hope not. I should go see him, but I need to change clothes, wear something less sexy, or maybe more sexy. Stella said, I think he is beautiful. You should go back to his room and make sure he hasn't run away. I hurried back to my apartment and changed into something sexy. I left out, I went out, I went left out the door instead of the usual right turn I took. This was the direction to Jack. It was, I guessed, nine in the morning. Jack's front door was closed but unlocked. I called his name, no answer. I opened the door and tiptoed down the hall to his bedroom. Would I find this other woman? He was alone, asleep on his side, facing me. The sheet covered the lower half of his body. He awoke and smiled at me. Hello, beautiful. I'm glad I didn't lock the door. Actually, I never locked the door, but I'm glad you were not shy about breaking and entering. He moved to make room for me. I did not undress. I crawled into bed with him and fell asleep promptly. Two more pages. We spent three three days together. Jack liked to cook. He'd been in Calives as long as I had, but he went to the restaurants only when guests came to show them the village life. He made simple spaghetti sauces, tomato, olive, garlic, oregano, and thyme from the hills behind town, occasional octopus that he snorkeled for himself five feet from his front steps. We had coffee and local fruits for breakfast, no lunch, and long leisurely uh, dinners after swimming. The second morning he made coffee, I sat... uh, next to a small, whole, uncut melon whose scent was intoxicating, ripe and completely ready to eat, the smell like jasmine and honey. I told the story of my mother's cancer and death. I did not speak of my father. It seemed that Jack really did work for the State Department as a consultant for an NGO in Egypt. He would be going back to Fayoum, south of Cairo, in the middle of August. He was planning to stay in Calivas until then, with one more trip to another island. Very matter-of-factly, he invited me to Antikythera, a block of granite and sheep and a handful of people halfway between the western end of Crete and the larger island of Kythera, where he'd already been. Kythera sits off the southern tip of the Peloponnese. His offhand invitation was charming and easy to say yes to. Hank never asked, uh, asked me along on his travels, although he always seemed to want to ask me. 
Sometimes I'd just go with him to the ferry and become Hank's, Hank's traveling companion, as if on the spur of the moment. One middle evening after dinner, I was washing dishes in the kitchen. I heard Jack and someone talking on the porch. I walked out to see Jack lifting a small jelly jar of clear liquid to his lips. Sukudia, I guessed. The man he was drinking with was blocked by the porch pillar. I sat on the chair to the left of Jack and saw Zeno also raising a jelly jar glass of this lovely drink. Zeno smiled at me. I was not sure he recognized me. Jack explained that this was his landlord and the drink was Sukudia, except he pronounced it Sukudia. I said, small world, he's my landlord too. I drank some of Jack's Sukudia. Zeno made it himself. Does he communicate with you, Jack asked. I told him I spoke English to him and he spoke Greek to me. We did not even pretend to understand each other. Me too, Jack said. He stands there, he never comes up on the porch. I invite him up every time. Sometimes he stares off into the distance, evincing a strange longing. He always leaves abruptly, no words, not even a bow. I addressed Zeno directly. Do you know who I am? I'm Emily, your lodger. He nodded, but he betrayed no familiarity with me that I could detect. We were silent. In an instant, he scooped up his now empty jelly jars, but left the small repurposed bottle, shampoo bottle of Sakudia, and he darted away. Jack said, strange man. Thank you.